Welcome to Different From The Other Kids, a weekly talk show for parents with challenging children with host Angela Sunis, a parent whose teen was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Each episode, Angela will have a discussion with an individual or professional within the mental health community. Different From The Other Kids, Season 1, a production of Marketing Maven. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Different From The Other Kids, a podcast for parents with challenging children. Okay, we are sitting here in our secret location somewhere outside of Toronto, Ontario, Canada, with my guest, Jackie Rocco. Welcome, Jack. Hi there, Ange. <laughs> okay, so uh, one of the best parts of my newfound profession is that I get to interview my favorite people. Jackie is the most inspiring person I have ever met in my life. She's gone through some of the most horrific circumstances and has come out not just surviving and not just thriving, but giving back to the world in a profound way. She took uh, unfathomable pain and transformed it into a powerhouse of healing and is working in the healing industry now dealing with, well, I'll let, I'll let her tell you, and we'll get a little background on Jackie, too, and some of, some of her history uh, that makes her an outstanding guest and hopefully somebody that everyone might find a little bit of their story within. So, Jackie, welcome. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> wow, that was a... Well, what can I tell you about myself? I guess where my life really took a turn was about... 25 years ago, just to give you some sort of historical uh, background, to give you some perspective about where I have been and where I am now, and the, the potential for all of us to be able to move forward, even with severe challenges and tragedy, is, is totally possible for everyone. I, in, I guess it's 1988, uh, my, I was coming home from a drive-in with my newborn son and my teenage daughter and my uh, husband at the time. We were hit head-on by a drunk driver. I was very seriously injured. My newborn baby received a head injury. My husband at the time also was critically ill and did have a substantial head injury. And my daughter died. Um, I, at that time, just prior to that, uh, life had been pretty good and I really hadn't been challenged in any way. And over probably the next five years, I did not think I would be able to survive it. Uh, it was, the pain was just absolutely unbearable. Uh, I didn't, I, I mean, I did have supports, but I certainly couldn't have imagined. Nobody was going through what I was going through, at least the people that knew me and, and couldn't possibly understand, even though as well-meaning as they were, I felt very isolated. And there were times I actually contemplated suicide for myself because I didn't think it would be possible to move forward without my daughter in my life or with such pain. I never experienced that kind of pain where it was just overwhelming both emotionally and physically. And then after a while, and probably because of having another child, and I did not want that to be my son's legacy, that I decided that I would move forward. And the defining moment for me when I did decide to move forward was I had actually contemplated a plan that day. 
I had been in bed for about three months, a year after the accident, lost a considerable amount of weight, was not eating, could not imagine how I could live without my daughter or uh, live without never seeing her again. And I had made a decision that if I couldn't find someone that had survived tragedy and was actually living their life in what I considered to be normal and with some purpose, then I was actually going to do that. And I remember when I was in the hospital, I was given a pamphlet from bereaved families and it did not, you know, they, they said, you know, call us if you ever need us. And I, I didn't, um, I didn't really feel that it was necessary. And I remember that day thinking, I really don't have any other options. So what I'm going to decide, I'm going to do is call them. And if someone can give me proof that they survived and I would reconsider my plan. And fortunately enough, a wonderful woman who doesn't ever know that she saved my life that day spoke to me and, and was very supportive, but was able to laugh, was able to talk about her life and, and the things that she was doing. And it, she seemed to have found new purpose even after the death of two children. And I got off the phone and I thought afterwards, if she could do it, I can do it. I didn't know how the, what that was going to look like. But the one thing that I did, I realized at that point was I wasn't alone. And I then joined a support group with other mothers that, even though it was a very small group, who had experienced similar circumstances, had a child killed, had dealt with a lot of pain and tragedy. And through just not being isolated, I started to even though it was still very difficult, I started to realize that I wasn't alone and this did happen to other people and that there could be a new purpose in life. Not exactly sure what that was going to be at the time. And I also felt too, as I could not make that my infant son's legacy, who also suffered a head injury at the time. And he needed me and I know the pain I was in and I couldn't willingly as a parent inflict that kind of legacy on my child or that kind of pain. So it was at that point that I started to figure out what my purpose was going to be. I did decide to go back to school. I'd always thought about human service and being involved in social work and the one thing that I realized that as I started to heal, which took a very long time, but is that without the support of people that accepted me for where I was and were able to just listen and help me from being uh, isolating myself, which, you know, is something I think when we're in a lot of pain that we tend to do, I realized at that point that that would be my purpose and that I would try and provide the same sort of supports that had been given to me in my healing, because without those, I would not be where I am today. It wasn't one particular person. It was a lot of people, and a lot of people that just genuinely cared and weren't afraid to hear what I had to say because it was terrible and painful and were willing to just sort of bear witness to my thoughts and accept me for where I was and not make me feel that there was something wrong with me. I remember when I met you, Jeff, we were talking about um, 
that originally you were talking about getting involved in victim services. Right. And what made you switch, do you think, from victim services over into social work proper and dealing with kids? I think probably the, the switch was is that I do believe supporting victims is, is very, very important. But the reason that I made that switch was my son started at five or six years old, started to really struggle emotionally and socially, was having difficulty and just very unhappy all of the time and started to do some really unusual things that I didn't understand. And it took quite some time and a lot of advocating to even understand some of the things that he was going through. But it was at that point when I realized the lack of services, the lack of understanding and empathy and practical resources for parents that an understanding that a, a young person with mental health issues, that their behavior is just symptomatic of, you know, their inability to develop proper strategies that soothe themselves. And because of that lack of lack of servicing, I guess understanding as a parent the, 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 the pain and the disappointment and the wanting something more that I felt that, you know, I would be better served serving young people with complex mental health issues and their families. And that's when I decided that I would go get into social work. And one of the main things as well, because I, as my son became an adolescent, he started to really, really struggle. Started using drugs, very impulsive had to be monitored at all times, was unable, violent, uh, wasn't able to control himself, was on major medications and monitored weekly by a psychiatrist and a whole host of other service providers. But there just was not enough servicing to support him or really any real understanding of what his needs were. And as a parent, it was um, really, really difficult because there wasn't any other parent that I could talk to. And I remember getting the, one of the diagnoses, which, I mean, was Tourette syndrome, but there were a multitude, multitude of uh, diagnoses, OCD, ADHD, acquired brain injury, learning disability. And that was great to get that diagnosis, but I remember saying to a friend, well, that's great, but I don't know how to parent this person. And what do I do with this? It doesn't change anything other than now we have a name for it. So, and I realized how at risk young people, particularly starting at adolescent, were at risk of being arrested and put within the criminal justice system because of their mental health issues. And that probably from my perspective as a program uh, manager for a uh, youth justice detention facility for young men that 85 to 90 percent of them have mental health issues that have not been diagnosed or they have not been supported around and they are being arrested based on their inability to manage in the environment that they're in and that every young person with mental health issues has trauma and is traumatized and that trauma in itself creates 
even more complicated mental health issues on top of the diagnosis or the initial mental health issues because unfortunately what does start to happen is they are re-traumatized regularly by teachers that don't understand, schools that aren't prepared to support them and create programming that is appropriate for them, parents not having any supports, parents not having anybody to talk to, or anybody that's really willing to understand or not blame them. So parents on top of that are traumatized, children are traumatized, and that creates, you know, a comorbidity of mental health issues, which are create even further problems and often lead to suicide. And not, and, and again, not the original mental health uh, challenge uh, that's diagnosed because most of the times once that diagnosis has been had, medications, you know, it, it depending on it, what it is, but medications and good psychiatric support, good family uh, counseling support can be effective, but it's the world at large that creates this stigma and it's, it, you know, we're getting better, but it's very subtle in what it says to the parent and what it says to the young person with mental health issues is that there's something wrong with you and you don't fit in the world and there's that, and that translates into that I don't have a place in the world and I'm worthless and regardless of what I have to offer, I will always be blamed for something that is not within my control and that feeds into desperation that is repeated trauma, trauma inflicted on a young person and then of course on the parents who, as a parent, I know too well is the agony of knowing your child doesn't fit in. Other people are insensitive to it, um, being bullied on a regular basis, emotional and sometimes physical, but sometimes emotional and sometimes just complete detachment and um, which again translates into I am nothing and I am invisible and um, so for me doing the work that I do because of my own child who has probably been in every psychiatric facility that there is long-term and otherwise and ha having to advocate for him in a way that was physically and emotionally exhausting for myself and then Finally, at, he became a, an adult, having to be traumatized myself by watching him spiral into drug abuse and not being able to have control of that anymore. And it was agonizing not having anybody to assist me. And unfortunately, addiction and mental health go hand in hand. Not always, but there is probably a much higher risk of uh, young people turning to drugs to cope. Combined with psychiatric medications, it can be deadly. And the reality is, is that what happens is young people end up being criminalized for their mental health issues. Mm -hmm. And then having to see your child who is vulnerable, living on the streets, knowing that you can't help them, there aren't appropriate supports, that if not anything in the program that I do run, I think having a clear understanding of that and understanding that every young person that comes into custody requires extensive supports and 
any young person with mental health issues requires extensive supports from the community at large as well. How are you feeling about the supports now for these parents that are dealing with these kids that are, are either being incarcerated or have been like at these situations? Do the parents really understand that their children in most cases suffer from some kind of mental illness? And do they actually, are you able to help in setting them up with uh, social, social services? And I guess, once again, if the parents do or do not know, are they supportive? How are they reacting when it is that you try and get these things in gear for them? Well, I have to say that our, our agency that I work for is unique because we are the designated mental health agency for youth that come into a detention setting, which is unique because generally it is a punitive approach and it is not a uh, treatment approach. We fortunately, and this is probably why I work for the agency that I work for because I totally am committed and believe in the values and the missions of the agency. We believe that most young people have, are suffering from mental health issues when they come into custody and that's how they ended up there. They are immediately assessed by a forensic psychiatrist and we do a full assessment to determine what they need. We are a one-stop agency, so if a youth is in our custody, there's access to clinicians, family counseling, anger management treatment, substance abuse treatment, and psychiatric care and, medica and medication prescribed by the forensic psychiatrist who is a specialist and works strictly with youth with complex mental health issues. So we are unique and we have other treatment programs so that if, if a youth is to leave our care, we have appropriate housing and supports available to them, which is very unique. Aftercare is not something that is generally, it's, it's very limited, it's got huge waiting lists and it really doesn't meet the needs of a young person. And the minute someone comes into our care, we have transitional workers to meet with them right away to start looking at their plans about housing, start looking at their plans about support afterwards, whether they're going to go to school, going to work, and they act as the advocate for that young person. And our role is to assist them with the challenges that they experience on an ongoing basis uh, to ensure that they're able to come back into the community with appropriate support so that they don't keep getting rearrested and that they're able to be successful in the community and that we support them around their mental health issues. Um, so I, so I, hate, I hate to say it, but it sounds a lot like um, my daughter's experience in that one of the greatest things that ever could have happened to her was being hospitalized in a residential treatment facility. We, and it's almost as if getting under the care of your you and your organization, or I don't know what you want to call it, that that actually becomes a, a lucky break if it is that they can utilize it properly. I guess one of the frustrations I know that you have had to do it on both sides, how are you feeling about the things that are in place for a parent and a child in a situation where they know they need help and they're going out to get it? I'm finding a lot of closed doors on preventative and uh, I just wanted you to speak to that a little bit from your perspective. So I know there's a lot of parents out there in that position as well. Once it is that 
that something happens, there seem to be certain things in place, hopefully, that people can be utilizing. But before that, it's difficult. It's really hard to get uh, some things in, in, in place. What, what are some of the things that you experienced? Absolutely. Until there's crisis, there are crisis facilities, and we look at things on an, on an intervening basis. But as far as prevention goes, there is still not a lot out there. Mm-hmm. And again, it's we've come a long way as far as the stigma of mental health, but I think schools have to got to come a lot further than where they are because a lot of boards of education are not willing to look at things until Mm -hmm. they become a crisis. I mean, there are some boards that are better than others, and I, you know, won't talk about which ones. In Toronto in particular, the only thing I can say is because it is so diverse and because there are so many people and there are so many young people in crisis, there are early intervention programs within the school setting, which are three-year programs for a young person who is just going into school that is starting to exhibit signs of mental health challenges and requires extensive supports. But that is, they are far and few between. It takes sometimes years to get them into these programs. Funding is cut, which is the big issue. So therefore, they don't have the funding. So until it does become a crisis and they have to deal with it, it goes on a hierarchy of the most needed, regardless that all of the young people need it. And unfortunately, even our government, Ministry of Health, even with the funding that they have, it isn't preventative. It's intervening again, and it's intervening based on crisis, which is the reason we have mental health safe beds for a person that's homeless and in crisis, and it's a temporary measure, is a is a person with mental health challenges in crisis, maybe 30 days of safety off the streets. There is hospitalizations. If you're in crisis, yes, you can go to the hospital, but whether they actually admit you into the hospital uh, is dependent on a lot of factors. And unfortunately, most people that under the Mental Health Act that can be uh, put on a Form 1 by a a medical doctor. Tell me what a Form 1 is. Uh, Form 1 is where you are in a state of crisis and you are not able to make decisions for yourself because of some sort of mental health crisis or you may be a threat to yourself or somebody else. So a doctor will, in fact, issue that, and that allows for 72 hours for for you to be detained in in a hospital setting for observation. The thing that I would would say is that we need to do a lot more interventive, and I think it starts at the school because that's the place where young people spend 75% of their young years. That's where it's most evident that when they start to struggle emotionally, socially, and the supports are needed at that point. There are, the Canadian Mental Health Association is starting to develop what's called um, early intervention programs for young people that more than likely will develop psychosis because it is based on evidence-based studies that early psychosis, if treated in young people, can in fact be quite manageable and not develop into a full-blown schizophrenia. 
and may not necessarily result in ongoing psychosis if intervention through medications, through treatment, and clinical observation. Okay. Jack, you are always, as always, an amazing uh, opportunity to get to know what it is that goes on with mental health. It is an exceptional opportunity that you're here. I really appreciate that you're here. I thank you for your thoughts. At this point, we're just going to wrap it up for now. What I'd like to do next way through is uh, maybe you could uh, tell us a little bit more about your son and how that all evolved. I know that you did some work with in advocating with him through the school system, things like that. If we could talk a little bit further about that, that would be great. For those of you out there listening, if you could write a review in iTunes for us, that would be great. The more reviews a podcast has, the better it has its ranking in iTunes, which means that it helps new listeners find this show. Please don't forget to follow Different From The Other Kids on Facebook and Twitter. Check out the book on Amazon. So just want to say thanks, guys. Stay amazing. And we will uh, talk at you soon. And now a disclaimer. In general, I, Angela Sunis, am not a doctor, and I certainly don't play one on the internet. I am not even that well-educated. I'm a parent, period. The advice from me presented on Different from the Other Kids does not replace advice received directly from a medical health professional. If you think you need help, I do recommend making an appointment with your physician or other appropriate health care provider. Thanks for listening to Different from the Other Kids, made possible with the support of Deborah Kenny Jewelry, jewelry meant to inspire. You can find them online at www.debrakennyjewelry.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Different from the Other Kids, Season 1, a production of Marketing Maven.